Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we talk about the UK's coronavirus response, and you ask us, why isn't Keir Starmer aligned with the teaching unions on schools closing? So we're back after our break for Christmas. Anush is still on holiday. Stephen, we have a lot to catch up on since we last spoke. We are recording on Monday afternoon, And we're currently in a situation where senior conservatives, including Jeremy Hunt, are calling on Boris Johnson to introduce a full national lockdown. And it is looking increasingly likely that that is going to happen, maybe even potentially later today. We might see some sort of announcement, not least because Boris Johnson himself said this morning that tougher restrictions are inevitable. If it isn't too grand a question, Stephen, where would you say we are in terms of our coronavirus response? And what do you think are the big problems that have led us here? Well, I think in some ways the problem is, is there is no such thing as the UK's coronavirus response. Not not just in a kind of, and I'm sure we'll get onto the like England, Scotland, Wales element further on in the episode, but there's the government's sort of revealed policy choice, which is basically like what is the kind of like between like Boris Johnson's unwillingness slash inability to do any of the like executive stuff where you go, I am prioritizing X. So to take a obviously current example, let's say that you didn't actually want to prioritize school staying open. Well, that would have huge implications for what you would ask to keep locked earlier in the in the pandemic. Whereas instead, what actually happened is us prioritizing school staying open is just that we have never really planned foreclosures, right? Like we haven't gone, oh, how could we improve digital learning? Yeah, what stuff could we do so we actually have meaningful distance learning rather than just a bunch of exhausted teachers? We haven't done any of that kind of stuff. But we also haven't done any of the, okay, well, if we really want schools to stay open, then no, sorry, you can't get a haircut in tier three. You can't get a takeaway. Yeah, like we haven't done any of those kind of risk minimization stuff earlier on. And now, of course, we're back at the point where you can't redo any of those things. So there's there's the stuff which results from the kind of inability to prioritize. Then there's the stuff which results from the kind of inability to decide between the kind of Michael Gove, Matt Hancock position of, 
lockdown, scientific developments will save us, and the kind of Rishi Sunak majority of the cabinet position of the debt, the debt, if, yeah, we've got to learn to live with it. You put all of those kind of things together, and the end result is the government policy, which is basically to have as few restrictions as you can get away with until the point when the NHS starts to cry uncle. And then, of course, you end up having much deeper restrictions. And I think that's basically been the story of everything we have done since the end of the first lockdown. The thought that has been plaguing me over the holidays, which I think I'm going to write up just so that I don't have to keep thinking it, is that exactly as you say, the reason for locking down in March and the reasons that we currently have very tough restrictions and that we're probably going to have to introduce even tougher ones in the days to come is to avoid the NHS being over capacity. And I feel like we say that a lot, you know, the danger of the NHS being overwhelmed. But I feel like perhaps in some parts of the media and sometimes sometimes when that's being discussed, I feel like it's slightly misunderstood. I heard a, a commentator the other day talking about how we were bending the economy out of shape to to throw a human shield around the NHS which I think is you know is is basically a, a correct assessment of what we're doing at the moment but I felt a little bit like that is describing the NHS as as sort of an abstract concept or as an ideal or a, a, a very British value about an institution rather than what it really means which is that we've had this this discussion, particularly in the UK, more so than I think in many other parts of the world, we've had this discussion for a lot of 2020. We were talking endlessly about the sort of the question of how much we live with the virus and how much we let it rip through society and getting the balance right between the economy and health restrictions. And I think that some parts of the Conservative Parliamentary Party that have these big ideological objections to lockdown and parts of the media that have a big ideological problem with these restrictions on the economy and people's freedoms. I think that those parts of the public debate maybe weren't really thinking about the way that there there has always been a completely like non-negotiable upper limit on how much COVID we can have as a society, which isn't going to be set by a sort of implicit or explicit decision on on the part of government about how many deaths we're happy to have as a result of this pandemic. But it's just set by the very real limit of the NHS's capacity. Because if the NHS is, is overwhelmed, you are looking at a situation in which someone has a heart attack and there is just no room for them in hospital because it is full of COVID patients. But where people are, are denied treatment for a huge range of health problems because of the pandemic and that I mean that would be a literal case of of state failure and I think when we have these discussions about how much we want the NHS that sort of balance between the economy and health and the restrictions that we can live with and so on I think that we haven't really taken that upper bound into account like no one is has sort of actually had the debate about whether we're happy to be a failed state and just like not have the health service able to meet the the needs of the population and so I think as you say we're in this kind of strange situation where rather than sort of thinking well if we if we want the economy to be opened up or we we're aware of all the dangers and harms economic and human of lockdowns so rather than thinking 
we don't want a lockdown, so we're going to open everything up. You have to have the public health measures in place to allow that opening up. You can't just sort of will it to be a certain way because you just end up locking down again, which is exactly what we're seeing. We've just seen these cycles of lockdown and release. I, ha- I feel a little bit exhausted because I feel like we could have avoided a lot of the discussion around the value or otherwise of restrictions and living with the virus if we had been really thinking about the ways in which we we actually set up our society and our virus response to allow ourselves to live without restrictions rather than just like you know going for for lower restrictions first knowing that eventually we were going to have to lock down again we spent a lot of a lot of last year talking about restrictions and living with the virus as though we had a choice when there was an ultimately at the upper end of COVID cases we don't really have a choice you're going to have to lock down to prevent the health service being overwhelmed and that isn't some sort of vague ideal about the NHS being a great British value but it's just sort of about the provisions that the state is committed to delivering for people. Yeah no I think that's exactly right and I think one of the things I found I mean there are many things that are frustrating about the state of British corona policy. Well, it's because it, it feels like it's entered, you know, that stage during the Brexit debate where you could sit there being like, oh, and now he's going to call on Hillary Benn. And that means he's going to go, okay, after he's gone to Hillary Benn, he, he he will either have gone to Yvette Cooper before Hillary Benn or he'll go to her straight afterwards. Okay, well, now he's going to switch over. Oh, so Bernard Jenkins gets a go. It's essentially exactly like that again, except it's like, we do this thing yeah, that we understand has a direct and very obvious cost in terms of rising caseloads. The rising caseloads do their thing. Then at about the point where like the public has started to get antsy, Keir Starmer goes, it's time for action. Then about a day after Keir Starmer has gone, oh, the public has got to a position where it's safe for me to say it's time for non-specified action. Boris Johnson is like, I think it's time for us to consider maybe having some proposals about maybe having some action in a couple of days' time. And then, like, someone leaks to a friendly newspaper, then at some point in the next couple of days, then, then you know, maybe, you know, some part of, the, of, of British society will close down. It's just, A, how, like, inevitable and sort of boring it is. It's not only we have, like, a lockdown where one's not allowed to do anything oneself, but in which politics is stuck in this kind of, like, oh, maybe I'll go for a walk to the big park today. But, you know, with a, a horrendous toll. But also exactly as you say, right? Now, obviously, it's true to say that the NHS has an emotional presence in British political debates that most other free-at-the-point-of-use healthcare systems do not have. But the political challenge, right? Like, just because, like, no one in Israel goes, oh, you know, I'm really invested in my health fund, it means the world to me doesn't change the fact and the reason why they ended up having to go why they ended up going to lockdown is because eventually right you turn up and it doesn't matter and you have an entitlement to to point of use healthcare through your your insurance plan right you ain't going to get to keep it right because because the hospital's overwhelmed like ditto like no one in france has a like emotional connection to their free at the point of use healthcare insurance model but the reason why they have to do this is because eventually healthcare capacity collapses I think one of the things I've found like particularly frustrating and obviously it's also the fact you know like it's locked down and it's dark so everything is also just a bit more eh, is the complete lack of quite important scientific understanding amongst like the political class 
the central issue being with the kind of and I mean one so we have a vaccine yet there are still some people saying oh maybe we should just learn to live with it but also all viruses mutate right that's you know that is why it's always in your interest if you have the ability to pursue an elimination strategy both you know if you're a country which hasn't had it yet or if you've developed yeah this is this is why and i think it's the thing people don't really understand about the oxford vaccine right in the so the problem reason why in south africa there's now this variant that may have come here already that that may delay the the end of lockdown because it, it may require the vaccines to go back into development for six weeks or so is then broadly most african democracies and indeed most african countries full stop have realized that because they have a younger population the social economic and kind of mental health costs of lockdown do not have the same sort of spur because healthcare infrastructure is going to be fine the problem is is that the more cases you have circulating right it's not guaranteed that the coronavirus continues to only affect the old and the vulnerable also i think anyone who who talks about it is only affecting the vulnerable should be challenged to list exactly what the conditions that make you vulnerable are because trust me the impression that those people both convey and i suspect have about what it means to be vulnerable in a coronavirus context is not yeah it, it's not one that, that would would recognize most people would recognize uh, and indeed it includes a number of symptoms and the, the first thing that you the first discovery you may have and you have it is when you die of the coronavirus and I think in general, one of the problems is, is that we've had very poor scientific understanding of the issues among the political class. As a result, we've had a very poor public debate, very poor public information, both led by our politicians directly, but also by our, our national broadcaster, which is why you've had like all sorts of disasters, like people having a meal outside and the restaurant has put them in a little tent with a heater. And it's just like, I understand why you've done this, but this essentially means you get rid of any of the benefits of just doing this out in person. <laughs> like, why have you done this? I suspect, because the thing we haven't really touched on ever, right, is that although the UK has had, I think, the worst overall coronavirus response among developed economies, barring Sweden, yeah, so of the ones which have kind of, you could say, have tried, it's also situated in the part of the world yeah, if you were to have an argument about, well, who, who's dealt with this the worst, right? The contenders, other than the United States, which I don't think counts for the same reason I don't think Sweden counts, because I don't think that those countries can broadly be said to have tried, their policy response has just been flawed for another reason. But the countries where you can be like, mm, well, you get a merit badge, are all countries of our type in Western Europe. And I suspect that one of the reasons for that is just a poor scientific understanding among our political elites. I include the media in that. And I, so I think that's why your kind of point about the NHS and why actually it isn't a choice you get to make. It's just something you can choose when it happens is exactly right. On a slightly different note, Stephen, you mentioned that we would probably go on to thinking about the sort of the four nations and how they're all doing. I'm, of course, coming to you live from, well, not live, ju just live for you, not for anyone else, from Belfast still. And Northern Ireland is going to be in basically lockdown until the beginning of February Wales is in a lockdown at the moment. Scotland is basically already in a lockdown with plans to toughen up the stay at home message today. And England is the only one that isn't completely in that tier four is tantamount to a lockdown, even though anecdotally, there's a lot of talk about actually the freedoms that people are still enjoying in tier four in terms of still like lots of people being spotted in the streets and, and being out, out and about in London and so on. But there's still tier three, which does leave other things open. 
in other parts of England. But the thing that strikes me, actually, we've been talking about really about Boris Johnson and his government, which is for all the reasons we've just talked about really like is not covering itself in glory and its response to this. But I think the interesting thing is that things are looking like very bad in the places that are already locked down. At the moment, in terms of cases per 100,000, Northern Ireland actually has the worst case rate of the four nations at the moment. It's really shot up over the past few weeks. Um, and I think that's the first time that that has happened, which obviously means in terms of raw numbers, Northern Ireland is still looks very low. But it, it does show that the across the, the four nations and their different approaches, a lot has gone wrong since December. We're just starting to see the impact of the Christmas debacle and the, the easing of restrictions and, and the last minute U-turns over that. But I suppose the the thing that just really strikes me is that there are at least quite tough restrictions in Northern Ireland and in Scotland and Wales already. Whereas I think the risk is that in England, the tiered system, as we see these cases going up and the death toll going up, we can at least expect that with these quite like high levels of restrictions in the other parts of the UK, that in two weeks time we should see those coming down that like this this should be the peak roughly but that isn't necessarily a guarantee in England where there is a higher tier for a lot of England to go into that's just the striking team thing that at the moment they're kind of all united in terms of how bleak the picture is with things particularly bad in London and the southeast but I think it's it's the risk that England stays in a bad situation for longer because of its tiered approach that I think would be most concerning. So the, the interesting thing is, is throughout this crisis that like the central political victory of Nicola Sturgeon has been setting out a different approach in terms of style rather than in terms of function. Although I would add that I think one of the things people slightly fail to understand about public health crisis is actually style is quite an important difference having lucid communication is is an important difference in a public health crisis, right? I mean, to use a, a, a non-contemporary example, many of the advice that, you know, if you had, okay, I was asked if you'd Google, obviously there, were no, there was no gov.uk in the 1980s. If you had gone to your local library and dug out like the government advice in, you know, in, in many democracies, you would have got something quite similar to the public health messaging that came literally from, you know, the mouth of, the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary, partly through the Health Secretary, Norman Fowler, going, look, no, I'm afraid you do have to use these very specific words, otherwise this won't work. Communication in a public health crisis is an important difference, even if the policies are, are broadly the same. Actually, the, the thing about the kind of Christmas debacle is, is it did produce for the first time ge- genuinely large divergence in terms of approach between Scotland and England. In the, the caseload is considerably higher, uh, higher in England, but Scotland not only had an even more curtailed version of the Christmas provision, but it's gone immediately into another lockdown with a lower caseload than at any other point than it would. So like, yeah, like broadly, the, the average person in Scotland is in tier four. And if that person, yeah, with the same healthcare capacity, same level of of of, of cases in their area were in England, they would be in tier three or tier two. 
so that is quite a big and important difference for the first time. But as you say, the the kind of central question for well, I think the central question for all for all parts of the United Kingdom is that the thing the thing which makes lockdown a deliverable policy approach are all about levers that the Treasury can or cannot choose to pull, all of which currently expire in April. Now, it may be that the vaccine rollout does achieve exponential growth. Yeah, like, yeah, the, the initial hiccups, yeah, kind of a thing of the past. And in a couple of weeks, you know, every everything that's usually used as a polling station is, is being used as a, a vaccination centre. And, and, yeah, the number of vaccinations has gone through the roof. But there are two lingering problems for the devolved governments. One, that they do now both have uh, genuinely stricter approaches. Can you maintain consent for that if, you know, there's this large landmass in, you know, like right next to you, which isn't doing that? One of the distinct challenges in Wales is that not all of the hubs of economic activity in Wales are actually in Wales, right? So in Scotland and in England, right, the major geographic clusters are centred around cities that are actually in those nations, right? But in addition, of course, to the vitally important role that Cardiff and Swansea play in the Welsh economy, to a lesser but still important extent, Liverpool and Chester play an important role in, in the Welsh economy. And it's therefore much harder to see how you can have a meaningful, enduring, long-term lockdown if we still have a situation in which Liverpool, Chester and the rest of the United Kingdom are, are shuttling in and out of different tiers. I do kind of think, however, that probably... Well, at no point in this crisis has anyone gone bust betting that the government in England will reach the same decision point as the devolved governments and, you know, the government in France, um, you know, five days later. And I think that will be the, the case here as well, right? We'll have So we'll have the, you know, the ridiculous from a public health perspective decision that large numbers of schools in England will have been told to go back for five days just to make sure they've spread spread the disease as far as they could. They'll then be told they they need to close. This will obviously have an effect in terms of the number of coronavirus cases in the United Ki- in, in in England, well, also in the United Kingdom, have implications for how long England has to remain locked down. But more important, well, not more importantly, but from a political perspective, more importantly, just further adds to the biggest boon that the SNP has managed to take from this crisis, which is Nicola Sturgeon having had a better crisis than Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the most important political consequence of all of this. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. 
Today's question, picking up on a similar theme to the first section, but specifically on schools reopening. We've had a lot of questions on this theme, but this one has been put very pithily. So it's, why won't the Labour Party support organised labour? How has Keir Starmer been outflanked in terms of supporting teachers' right to work in safe conditions by Tony Blair, the Lib Dems and 67% of the British public? So Stephen, how do you explain the Labour Party's position on schools remaining closed? Um, so far, they've sort of been broadly siding with the government, saying that they should stay open. How do you explain the apparent caution on this one and the apparent divergence from what teaching unions are calling for? The caution is the, actually the easiest part of their what I, what, I, what I view as the mistakes in how they approach this is the easiest bit to understand, which can basically be answered through like, have you spoken to a parent with school aged children over the past year? Broadly, the, 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 the level of rage, concern, sort of ambient thing where at, at the prospect of school closures for a large chunk of that period, for a prospect of them remaining closed when they were closed for a large chunk of that period, the idea of them being closed, right? So that's kind of the push factor all along has been the, 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 that, that parental anger. And actually, from an electoral politics perspective, and also from the fact that right, school closures do have huge social costs, I think that their kind of rhetorical position initially of no ifs, no buts, schools should not close was the correct one, electorally, morally, from policy terms. The problem was is that, and this is why I actually think in some ways, right, the, I would say the big problem is I suspect that both our questioner and Keir Starmer do see this question in the same way which is like, oh, there's this thing called the teachers' unions and you need to triangulate in and around their position and the government's position and then doing this somehow finds you victory. Actually, I'm sorry, I think the teachers' union position, A, has been reasonable throughout, but actually is kind of irrelevant because let's imagine for a moment then the, the teaching union's position. And obviously we're talking about unions with quite different internal politics, quite different area interests. So the relative level of unity there is is a sign i would argue that the government has messed it up but let's for a moment imagine that the teaching unions are incorrect or that they are solely concerned about the interests of their members well one that's that's kind of their job that is their role in the political system but that still wouldn't change the fact that school closures are a policy with huge costs and then the way if you want to accomplish that you have to be willing to be more radical and more bullish on calling for closures elsewhere than the Labour Party has ever really been willing to be. And, and you know, some people will, I know, because whenever I've made this point in like the email or if I alluded to in the podcast, you know, many, many people email to me like he called for a two week circuit breaker to coincide with half term. OK, that's true. But look, the circuit breaker can delay the peak for two weeks. But it, it can't in of itself fix the scale of the problem, right? Unless, you know, like now what would fix the problem would be if you went, we're actually going to circuit break during every single school school break, right? You say, look, actually, I'm afraid that does mean a more miserable summer for some people. I'm afraid that doesn't mean X, Y, Z, right? Like there are, you know, there are lots of things you could do that would sort of meet that position. And I just think that the problem is, is they, they, they entered this zone of, oh, you know, we have our Labour Party stakeholders, we have our stakeholders in this thing, and then parents are really angry. Instead of just being like, okay, right, if the policy outcome you want is schools to remain open, that has large but actually quite obvious implications for your what you will and won't unlock. And I think this is the, the thing is that, like, 
surprise, surprise, I, I think Tony Blair is a, a more effective politician than Keir Starmer. But yeah, like I think one of the reasons why, for example, Blair has like ended up in, a, yeah, has had a, a better and more cogent position is that he does understand that you have to prioritise what it is the thing that you want and act accordingly. And if what you want is to avoid school closures, that has implications for what else you do. And at this point, right, like the, 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 because of the failure to prioritise, right, the, the scientific decision makes itself. So you, you now just do end up in a position where you're like, well, yeah, of course they need to close because you didn't do any of the other things than, they, than they've done. The problem is because Keir Starmer did not go, we want schools to stay open and therefore X, Y, Z has to close, they can't retreat to, well, you didn't do any of the things we asked you to do to keep schools open, so now schools have to close. They have to then be like, I know we said it was important to keep them open, but now it's important for them to close, and we can't really point to anything we would have we would have done differently. Now, you can, podcast pass him, say, yeah, well, look, if like there had been more of a focus on their sick pay policy, they'd have a better story to tell on that, but there wasn't, so they don't. I think, yeah, to be honest, to annoy our Lib Dem listeners uh, even more than usual, I think, you know, with, with the Lib Dems, right, like, for them, it is just a lot easier. They're a much smaller party, and they haven't had to be particularly coherent on this. But also, the thing that they have done well, is they have had a consistent line of broadly being like, well, we're not going to be outflanked by Sage, which means that in August, they had the correct, even though they're not worried about it, because, you know, who cares about the Lib Dems? correct position of well schools being open is a policy with costs so you can't open other things if you want to do it and now they have the correct well you didn't do that so schools got to close yeah so i think broadly the problem is just a, a lack of sort of not so much strategic thinking but a lack of of kind of a willingness to go we want this thing and therefore we will not have that thing and if you don't do that whether it's in government or in opposition eventually you you end up in a bit of a mess so yeah what do you think's gone gone wrong just thinking about your point on the Lib Dems, I really do think that there's the trail of a of a coherent coronavirus response in the neglected Lib Dem press office press releases in my inbox. That I think you are right that because the stakes aren't as high for them, they have been able to have, I think, quite a coherent response and have been a lot bolder in the things that they call for quite consistently since the summer or even before. Whereas, as you say, I mean, there have been points like with the circuit breaker where Keir Stormer did stick his head above the parapet. But in general, I mean, thinking about the, the Christmas policy, I do remember the press release from Labour when when the four nations unveiled their plans for Christmas, which I think you could tell a mile off were a disaster. And, the, you know, the Labour Party, Party was calling for an urgent plan to make sure that the trains would run properly. And then, you know, yesterday we saw that big intervention from Keir Starmer calling for a national lockdown, which arguably is what, what was required, but somewhat ironically, given that they mentioned zoos being one of the things that are open in tier four that they would like to close. The intervention completely ignored the elephant in the room, which is that cases are now so high that schools will inevitably have to close. I just agree with you. I was interested to hear your perspective on it. I think that it just seems to me that since this is a decision that the government is inevitably going to have to take and quite soon, the Labour party can't be bothered with the the political cost of of being the ones who who disappoint parents or seen to disappoint parents by saying oh you have to close schools with all the disruption that that will cause 
all of the known harms of taking children out of school and kind of as you say you turning on your position of schools having to stay open without being able to point to very many policy interventions where you've shown how you would keep schools open but I find the announcement yesterday quite bizarre for that reason. I think the the Labour Party just occasionally in, in recent months has had a real habit of intervening to call for something big and urgent, but it's actually quite a small intervention. And uh, yeah, I think that Keir Starmer making his intervention on a Sunday but not not addressing the schools thing was a was a bit of a failure and and also I'm not actually sure there would be that many political costs of of stating the obvious at this point that schools need to close or at least be delayed and that that should be not just in in London and and places where the incidence of the new variant is very high but across England like so the thing the thing I know I don't know is instinctively I just think that I'm sorry. I'm afraid I am going to do an. I, I promise I'm going to cut down on these a bit in 21. But I am going to do an Arsenal metaphor here, right? Which is that when Mikel Arteta became Arsenal coach, right? The thing that he improved was that the team became much tougher to beat, right? And it did better at like big games. But the second that the team had to be protagonists, right? When we were playing, you know, Burnley at home to pick a real world example, the team just lacked any forward momentum, lacked any gumption, lacked any plan to win games. And in some ways, the big strategic victory of 2020 that Keir Starmer has is that he did not, in the early period of like March, when anyone who went, hmm, maybe we should be locking down fast, became, you know, a kind of subject of like a, you know, two minute hate, did not introduce himself to the public in an unfavorable way. The problem is, is that can you win an election with a kind of safety first? We're just not going to get done on the counter. And at some point, like, we'll just nick a goal somehow, right? Can you win an election doing that? I have this problem where all of the available data suggests to me, yes, you can, but I just don't believe it. I just I just think at some point something goes wrong, right? You know, whether the Conservatives get rid of Boris or the Labour Party never gets into the position it needs to be on economic competence. Or, but, you know, something means that it doesn't work out, right? And I think we're starting to see some of the ways that something doesn't begin to work out, which is that if you're not willing to take the risk in Christmas, because as you say, with, with that, with the Christmas press release, it was the, it was obvious that everyone connected in the Labour Party thought privately this was a terrible idea. It's just like, if you're not willing to like take the risk of going, yes, I am the person who thinks that you should count. Yeah. If you're not willing to do, be the person who goes, like, I know it's hard, I know it's upsetting, but Christmas this year will be me, Vix, and the kids. If you're not willing to 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 have that little bit of risk taking, so if you're not willing to like, of course, school should stay open, and that's why I'm not getting a just eat, right? Like if you're not willing to do that kind of small, but actually risky stuff, you're only willing to do the like now public opinion and the health data is is doing what it's doing. And now I'm going to enter the debate. I just think that eventually it doesn't work. Eventually you do lose to Burnley at home. But yeah, I promise I'm only going to do this once every month. So there will only be 12 Arsenal analogies this year. That's your New Year's resolution. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray. And you can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva, A-L-V-A. And you can find me on Twitter at at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.